0: People will come in, and if you can provide them with a sense of what the value of coming in is, they do in fact do it. But education is critical.
1: This is True to Your Heart, lessons on living a healthy, hearty life. Brought to you by Ameren. I'm Ron Jaworski. Welcome to True to Your Heart, where we discuss new ways of looking at your cardiovascular health with leading health and wellness experts. Last time we focused on women and their heart health, and today we're now going to focus on men and their heart health. My first guest is the Director of Preventive Cardiology at the CGH Medical Center in Sterling, Illinois, Dr. Peter Toth. Dr. Toth is a member of multiple associations and boards including the american college of cardiology foundation council on cardiovascular disease prevention and the american heart association council on lipoproteins lipid metabolism and thrombosis he has authored and co-authored over 220 publications in medical and scientific journals and of course textbooks today he's here to educate us on how men can get a handle on their heart health Dr. Toth, it's great to have you on True to Your Heart, this wonderful podcast that I really enjoy doing. And as I do my research to have these discussions, some things are alarming to me. They just jump out at me. And when you talk about heart disease, it is the most common death for men in the country. So
0: why do so many men avoid going and seeing the doctor? Well, I think that a lot of it has to do with just a lack of awareness Sure, they may have relatives who have died of heart disease, but often they are unaware that beginning from a very early age, even from their teens and early 20s, the clock is ticking, and it's critical that they be evaluated for their overall risk factors like blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, whether or not they're exercising, smoking, what their sleep pattern is like. And I I think educating men about these issues would go a long way toward helping them to pursue appropriate health care more often. A recent Cleveland Clinic survey
1: highlights a negative attitude that many men have about seeking medical care. And I I found the the results astounding. And I'll give them, and then you could comment on them. 72% of respondents said they would rather be doing household chores. 65% of respondents said they, well, they avoid going to the doctor as long as possible, and 20% admitted they aren't even honest with their doctor, and 37% said they withheld information from their doctor. I mean, what do you think when you hear statistics like that? To me, they're mind-boggling, and where do you believe that this negative attitude toward going to the doctor has has come from?
0: I have been aware of those findings, but I'd, I'd like to see how that survey was structured, because if 72% 72% of men say they would rather do household chores like cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> I think to some extent they're trying to be funny because I don't think they really mean that. In my experience, it takes time for men to develop a, a good, trusting relationship with their physician. But once they do, I find no difference between men and women who pursue health care in terms of the honesty, in terms of the forthrightness, in terms of their description of symptoms they might be having or in terms of wanting to remain healthy and maintain overall mental as well as physical wellness. So I actually don't believe all those statistics. I think a lot of men may have some issues finding someone they really trust, but once they do and once they know that they have a, a caring, compassionate physician, they're just as open as the women are. Peter,
1: what are the risks that that men face by not going to the doctor not visiting a doctor not getting the professional vice that is so necessary. Take heart disease, Ron, which
0: you just highlighted a little bit. Mm-hmm. Heart disease begins at a very early age, the so-called hardening of the arteries, atherosclerotic disease. And we know that by the time most people are children, the earliest phases of atherosclerotic disease are in the making. And then as we move through adolescence and into early adulthood, it progresses. There are some very grim statistics out there. When you look at studies that looked at unfortunate young men who were killed in Korea or Vietnam, you find that half, half of these young men in their early twenties already had anatomically apparent coronary artery disease in their hearts. Now you think of this as an older man's disease, but when you're talking about half of young men in their early twenties already having anatomically apparent disease, This is a very serious issue for young people. And the problem is we typically wait till someone is older or already has manifested evidence of disease that we begin to treat them. And so I think thinking more in terms of prevention rather than treating established disease has to be the name of the game. In order to encourage people to come in sooner, you do have to make them aware of What problems they're going to be developing as they get older and how those can be prevented or forestalled by seeking treatment or some form of intervention, whether it's lifestyle modification and in some cases, medication. Is there a way we as a society
1: can better address the fact that men do not want to go to the doctor? I mean, is, should there be some public service announcement? Is there a better way to handle it and make people aware of the great work being done by doctors like yourself?
0: Yeah, I think there's some very simple things. If you put up billboard signs yep. uh, emphasizing the need for preventive care, if you provide people with appropriate press. So- Nothing that advertises a specific approach or a specific medication, but just educates people about simple things like why it's important to exercise virtually every single day of your life, why it's important that you not smoke beyond cancer, because smoking is a critical risk factor for heart disease as well, why it's important to eat a healthy diet, why it's important to sleep an adequate number of hours, uh, why it's important to be evaluated periodically for your cholesterol, make sure you're not diabetic, make sure your blood pressure isn't climbing, Uh, make sure that you're not developing cancerous lesions on your skin. People will come in. And if you can provide them with a sense of what the value of coming in is, they do in fact do it. But education is critical.
1: I totally agree with that. I think of people that I've come in contact with, and sometimes they just don't understand How they can reduce their risk of heart disease by going to the doctor, by getting more information, they find out more. So, what would you recommend to people say, hey, that want to reduce their heart disease? What would you tell them? Well,
0: I would tell them that not only do they need to understand that the time is now, but they need to inculcate that same sense into their children, other family members. And get checked out. Again, this is a young person's disease. It develops insidiously, slowly, progressively over time. And yet, you know, it's interesting when you look at the statistics, Ron, because between 1980 and 2013, the prevalence of people dying from heart disease continuously decreased for both men and women. But since 2013, it's once again on the rise and it's rising continuously for the last seven to eight years. And it tells me we really need to do a better job of educating our society, educating all members of our society. If you educate people, you can help to reduce healthcare disparities between different racial groups, between men and women, uh, between different ethnic groups. Educating people about the need to remain adherent with therapy goes a long way toward helping to reduce disease prevalence and premature death. These are very simple, fundamental issues, and they don't cost a lot of money because if someone comes to your office and they have a problem, you initiate a treatment and you help them understand very, very precisely what the implications of a disease or uh, whatever their problem is, what the implications are for his or her health and why it's important to make sure that they stay on treatment, perhaps for the rest of their lives, depending upon what it is. They will, as long as they understand it. And you really make a big difference this way. Simple education.
1: You know, many years ago, I was educated on blood pressure, how important it was to, to monitor your own blood pressure. Uh, and I have a blood pressure monitor every morning. I check my blood pressure to be sure it's in the range that it needs to be at. What would you recommend as a normal blood pressure range for those people that
0: monitor their blood pressure? Blood pressure fluctuates a great deal because... Your blood vessels, your brain, your heart, they're all interconnected, and your brain is continuously emitting signals to your heart and blood vessels, and vice versa, and you're responding to your environment, you're responding to dietary intake. There's a whole lot going on that determines what your blood pressure is going to be at any given moment in the day. So there will be some fluctuation, but we do like to see it, on average, less than 130 over 80. When it goes over 130, over 80, you do see a significant increase in risk for heart attack, stroke, premature death, uh, need for bypass surgery, stenting. And the higher it goes, the bigger the risk. But there is something of a change in the slope of the relationship. So less than 130 over 80 is pretty much ideal.
1: You know, I hear so much about diabetes and, you know, its effect on on heart disease and, and and what should we look for as signs of, of, of diabetes?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Ron. And some of the classic signs and symptoms are going to be thirst and very copious urination because a lot of people who become diabetic, their blood sugar gets to be so high, it could become three, four hundred. And the body's way to try to get rid of some of that sugar is to pee it away. And so these people are peeing so much, they get very thirsty. You know, back in the old days, in medieval times, they would set someone's urine out in a cup outside. And if it drew a large number of flies, (laughs) uh, no (laughs) kidding, they would sometimes just make the the diagnosis of diabetes on that basis alone because the, the urine was so sweet, it would attract the flies. Now, something else that's very important is, Some people may develop numbness and tingling in their fingers, their toes. Uh, They may experience fluctuations in the acuity of their vision, depending upon what their blood sugar is. They may feel chronically fatigued. They may find that they're insatiably hungry all the time because although their blood sugar is sky high, that glucose, that sugar is not getting into the tissues and driving their metabolism. So all of these are important early warning signs. Another one is they may be losing weight, actually, coupled with fatigue, dehydration, uh, and sometimes they actually present in what we call ketoacidosis, which is life-threatening because now their entire metabolism is turned upside down and they're living in a, a metabolic acidosis that's very dangerous. But at any rate, you don't have to have all those symptoms. It's just important as an adult to be checked every year or so to see what your sugars like. I hear so much about alcohol and, and its
1: effect in the heart and in Yeah, I've heard things like red wine actually can help with your heart health, and I don't know if that's a myth or not, but what are your feelings on alcohol and their impact on your heart health?
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, there's something called the French paradox that put this question on the map because a lot of people consider alcohol to be somewhat deleterious to health, but when you look at the French, they drink the most wine per capita of any people on earth, and yet they have some of the best longevity <laughs> of any nation on earth. And the same for the Italians, especially the Sicilians who drink a lot of wine and they're very long lived. And actually here in the US, the Framingham study, which is very famous, it's in Massachusetts, uh, actually showed the same thing. Now, there is a point where it's deleterious, but bottom line is when we talk about one or two glasses of, of wine a day uh, for the average man or woman, it does appear to have more health benefit than any uh, signal for danger. And why is that? It does appear to be a heart healthy issue because alcohol can actually help dilate blood vessels, which is good for tissue perfusion with blood. And then you specifically mentioned the red wine. There are a lot of compounds in red wine, the so-called tannins, which are compounds like resveratrol, quercetin, catechin. The list is very long. These are uh, actually very potent antioxidants. And it's believed that these antioxidants, especially in red wine, uh, provide some degree of protection because atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries in in some sense is like a, a, a rusting of a pipe. And if you have an antioxidant available, it appears to be beneficial. So, I certainly don't discourage people from sensible wine consumption with the evening (laughs) meal. And I mean that. Uh, One or two glasses is perfectly reasonable. But once you start approaching the five or six glass point, which some people do, then definitely the health benefit disappears and there's greater risk for health detriment and even accidental death because of drunk driving cases, et cetera. So I think being sensible one or two glasses with the evening meal does appear to be a healthy component of diet. Dr. Peter Toth, thank you so much for joining us on the True to Your Heart
1: podcast. Your information is invaluable. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Ron.
1: Our next guest is a former NFL running back with the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears, an ESPN analyst and a survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and open heart surgery. He is also a great friend of mine and a superhuman being, Merrill Hodge. This show is uh, very special to me because I have my dear friend Merrill Hodge with me and Merrill and I uh, spent a lot of time together at ESPN. In fact, uh, over 20 years, we were colleagues and became great friends. And he's a very special person, as you will find out in the next 20, 25 minutes or so here on True to Your Heart, that this is a very special human being, uh, not just a Tremendous football player, but a tremendous person, and that's probably the, the quality that I admire most in Merrill. So, Merrill, great to
2: have you here on True to Your Heart podcast. Josh, let me first acknowledge this: it's the first time in over twenty years you got it right. How long we've been together? <laughs> <laughs> it's good
1: to be with you, brother. Well, the, the memory's still good, my friend. The memory's still good, and you know, you've had you know some incredible ups and downs in your life, uh, not only on the football field but in life in general. And you know, I I, I still remember the day. Uh, When you had your open heart surgery in Pittsburgh, and uh, Sal Palantonio and and myself uh, went to Pittsburgh to be with you and give you whatever support we could give you. I I still remember seeing you after you came out of open heart surgery, and uh, I'm going, oh my God, you know, oh my God. And then the next day we came in, you said, well, you're already up around walking. It, It was just remarkable to me that after open heart surgery, the recovery you've had, and you were back to work in four weeks. Give us a little background on what led to that
2: surgery. You know, ironically, Josh, it's actually kind of an arduous and a long one and a a very interesting one. I actually was diagnosed or they diagnosed that aorta defect on my last pet cat scan that I had when I uh, had been going through cancer. So when I got no treatment, I had to do these pet cats every month and it was my last one. It was year five. It's the last one as long as that one was going to be clear. They were going to give me my cured perspective. Obviously, that's the only thing I cared about. That was my focus. And even though it had been five years, you still worry about that last one, you know, for it to come back and show signs of the disease. And then you're, you're fighting again. But they came back and they said, hey, listen, Meryl, you never have to come back in here again. You're cured. There was something in his voice that just I was like, I, that's not the last thing he's going to say. He's like, but uh, we noticed that um, your aorta is a little enlarged. You might want to get that looked at. Don't know how severe it is, but you want may may want to look at it. Okay, so yeah. Jaws, I don't even know what the aorta is. I go, what's your aorta? And they go, that's your heart muscle. And I'm like, oh, well, I've been training my whole life. Of course, it's a <laughs> little bigger than the rest. I was like, yeah, don't worry about that. Anyway, long story short, they we monitor it for a year. I do an echocardio, you know, once a year. And it really didn't change. Then that's what they felt. They felt after, felt after a couple of years, if it really hadn't changed, and that was the lining of the wall of the bubble more than the bubble itself, it wasn't really going to be a factor. So after two years, I stopped. Wow. And for some reason, almost 10 years later, every day I'd train, I'd do intense training. I don't know why, but something was eating at me. I, you know, I was thinking about, God, if I had a heart attack down here in my gym, I mean, and my kids were gone. I'm like, nobody would probably find me for weeks. And I'm like, why would I think like that? That's the dumbest thing. It drove me. I said, I had had a stress test. So I called up my doctor and I said, Hey, listen, I, I want to get a stress test. He goes, well, why? And I said, well, listen, I like to validate my health. I think that's an important um, aspect for every human being. That's why you have tests. That's why you have exams. That's why you have annual visits to make sure that, that you can find things early. The earlier you diagnose things, obviously the better. Um, and you like to validate your health. So He's a, let's look at that aorta when you do that stress test. And I was like, oh yeah, I got completely forgot about it. So after the stress test, they did the echocardio. As soon as you finish the stress, you've maximized it. They laying on t- table and doing an echocardio. And that's where they, they realized it had enlarged. I want to say there was a number. I don't know why the number six or mm-hmm. seven pops into my head, but it was, it was emergency surgery size. This is what, where it was at that point. And that's where I found it, Josh. I mean, I'll fast forward. I remember talking to my doctor prior to the uh, surgery, I was like, you know, when would I have probably discovered this? And he said, uh, in your autopsy. Wow. He said, you don't discover these. He goes, how you discovered that is a, in reality, kind of a fluke because you have to do like a stress test would not tell me I had this. You need that echocardio to get verification of it. So that sent chills down my spine. (laughs) So, So, So the fact that you
1: had cancer, you're diagnosed with cancer, you obviously, you know, five years later, got a clean bill of health
2: but if you didn't have the cancer, it would have been likely they wouldn't have found the the enlarged aorta. Correct. Like I said, the doctor, I would have had no. I really had no symptom. I mean, my, my my aorta was at an emergency level, emergency surgery level. Okay, I had zero symptoms. I had nothing that would indicate I was having. I had that issue. Nothing, and I was training hard. I was um, no less active I've, than I've ever been in my life, and there was nothing that held me up. I didn't feel anything. It, honestly, Jaws, it was just like my gut. Mm. You know, I, I, that's why I think, you know, I try to tell people, you know, when you invest in your health, you're your biggest, best weapon. You're your best doctor. You're your best nurse. If you listen to your body, the more in tune you are. And i tell you, that's what was eating at me. Something was wrong and it just provoked me to call my doctor and get a stress test because I hadn't had that in a while. I mean, thank goodness I did. Well, you've always been an incredible workout warrior,
1: uh, as I said a few moments ago, you know, after the open heart surgery, a month later, you were back to work. It was remarkable. You were such a, a tempo setter for all of us. And I, I kind of think of myself wanting to keep myself in pretty good shape, but you are in magnificent shape. Were you always that way or was were the health challenges uh, what really motivated you to get yourself,
2: you know, in the shape that you even maintain to this day? You know, Josh, it started when I was about five or six years old. To Be honest with you, I was. Uh, I, I'd see those comic books. I'd see Spider Man. I see Batman. <laughs> now, now Spider Man was the guy that stood out because I'm like, I'm like, how do these guys get those bodies, man? I'm like, those are great <laughs> bodies. I'm like, how do they do that? So, as a kid, I got fascinated by how their bodies were, and I I became passionate about training. Um, I try to eat right. I would try to work out. She, when I was in in junior high, I'd, I'd get a hall pass twice a day to go to the bathroom. I go down to the gym <laughs> and, you know, back then, you will the universal sets, the only thing you had, like if you had a universal set, like that was big time. <laughs> and I go down there and bench and do shoulders. And, and then I come back to classroom <laughs> and like, people are like 20 minutes in the bathroom. That's a long <laughs> time. In the bathroom. I was fascinated with it as a kid. Um, and then as it evolved in my life, there was actually, uh, I was around 13 years old. We were at this pool party. There was one of the kids who was like the, the stud of the high school. He was about six years older than me. And he was, I mean, everything in sports. And his dad was there with him. And I remember a guy, these two guys were talking next to me. And they're like, oh my gosh, his dad was just like him when he was in high school. He looked like him. I mean, he was as good an athlete as he was. But I mean, his dad was really out of shape. I mean, his dad was really, really heavy. And I remember thinking, I'm like, now, does that just happen? Or did he let himself go and that happens? But it was a good, it was a testament for me that as a kid, I'm like, I'm not going to let myself get there. I remember as a kid, I thought, I'm not going to ever let myself get out of shape. That's a responsibility I have to myself and to my family. And it ended up, you know, evolving into, I mean, my profession, our professions that we played, you know, you had to be in physical shape and the best physical shape you could be in, the better you're going to be. And um, that was just part of it, though. That was never really my driving force for it. It's always been a personal matter. It's the thing I enjoy and invest in the most. It's my greatest investment. I try to tell people all the time. It's the one thing in circumstances like I've had when I was diagnosed with cancer or open heart surgery. The first thing they ask you, you got to be in great shape to survive it. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I go back to the cancer. There was a guy who was 39 years old, you're older than me, that was told he wasn't in good enough shape to withstand the brutality of the treatment. So they couldn't even do treatment to him because you're in such poor shape. And it's not something you can go down to target and purchase, mm. you know, if you need it. And two things I think are of great asset to people. If something were to come um, health-wise, your health and early diagnosis. Like those two things are the probably the most pivotal thing that we are responsible for and that we have access to and we need to utilize. And I've utilized that in my life in every aspect. And I'm I'm, I'm grateful because I'm probably not here talking to you, mm. uh, my friend, if, if I hadn't done that.
1: You know, I I think back on uh, your your career, and even going back to to high school out in Idaho, and you know your college career, your pro career with the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears. To me, it's somewhat easy to talk about staying in shape and training because you know that's what you do. That your your body's a temple; you take care of it. You're competing in professional sports. You you know you have to be at your very very best mentally and physically. But as time goes on, you know you're retired. You're working at ESPN. You know, they bring out the platters between every break. You get lousy food that you probably shouldn't be eating, but we eat it anyway. You know, it's a different lifestyle. How do you maintain your lifestyle now, as opposed to
2: how it was when you were training to be a professional athlete? Yeah, you said the pivotal word, jaws. Is it's a lifestyle? You know, so um, I've structured a lifestyle where I know how to eat. Okay, so I really know how to uh, what kind of foods to eat and how much to eat. I think that. There's a a certain formula that I follow that's helped me learn how to eat and make good choices. But I really surround myself with this. I try to make sure I avoid sugar at all costs, you know, fructose, I mean, all of the sugars that are really toxic and bad for you. In fact, most people don't realize this. There's actually a limit that you're supposed to have per day. So adults, males, it's 39 grams for women. It's 25 grams. So just think about that. Like if you went and got a Coke. Turned around, there's 55 grams of sugar in one can. Whoa. So you've already exceeded it if you have one Coke during the day. So I try to avoid sugar at all costs. Now, does that mean I don't have a, a, a piece of cake or or a, a little bit of a Coke one day? Or, no, I, I still do. I just that my lifestyle that is not what controls me. I control it. If I want a little bit of that, I can have that. But I really try to avoid sugars. Emphasize whole foods where I eat proteins, and then complex carbs and unsaturated fats. Fats are such a vital component, uh, especially for our brain. So you need them. So people, people who hear that, go, oh, I don't want to have fat because I don't want to get fat. Well, actually, sugar converts to fat quicker than fat. Fat's an energy source. Mm-hmm. You need fat. And then try to not overeat at every meal. And I've created a lifestyle for that. In fact, COVID, I'll tell you this, Josh, is interesting. And it's constantly evolving. I've been doing this for, oh, god, say 50 years, right? And I'm still learning stuff. So in COVID, I, I hear this. Uh, I can't remember what sparked it, but you, we all need, from a nutritional perspective, X amount of protein. So let's just say you need 100 grams of protein, right? Well, your body can only take care of so much protein every time you sit down to eat. So that means you can't sit down and have 100 grams of protein and say, I'm good for the day. Because your probably body probably used 25 grams of it. Yeah. So what I did is I started looking at how I am I'm like, I'm probably eating too much protein per meal. So I stretched it out to almost seven meals. And I would take like 25 to 30 grams every setting and then surround it by some complex carbohydrate and some fat. So I, I do my physical. My doctor asked me if I wanted to do my body fat. And I was like, I didn't want to go sit in a pot or water. I, got, I Anything else to me is irrelevant. It doesn't really measure it. But they now have bone density. They tell you bone density, your muscle mass, and your fat per limb. Wow. So right, left leg, right, left arm, core. And then they sum it up. It's the most detailed way to tell body fat. And I was like, oh, well I'll do that. And they went in and I ended up being 7.7. 7. Now I tried 30 years ago to try to get my body fat. I had a contest with a member EA, EAS yeah, nutrition, right. Sean and Bill Phillips, Sean. Oh yeah. You, I remember Sean Phillips uh, at the Super Bowl. They had some great parties. I know that. <laughs> yes. I knew you said remember. So we had a contest and the lowest I could get was 8.5. My, my point is, and I'm not trying to impress anybody, but impress upon people how important what you consume and how much you consume, you know, throughout your day. Wait, right right
1: now, Meryl, you're 7.7% body fat
2: right now? Yeah, I just did. Holy. And, and listen, Josh, I was blown away too. When I got done, I was like, are you? I was like, I'll go. He goes, I, he came in, he says, he goes, i never seen a 56-year-old 7.7. Holy Mac- It's <laughs> I have I, There's no diet. I, I hate the name diet. When you hear a diet, um, you talk to people. They're like, yeah, I'm going to try this for six months. I go, what are you going to do after that? Well, I'll go right back doing what I was doing. It's a lifestyle. Right. You know, and you got to create a good lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle. You, you learn how to, you know, I'll tell you, I'll give you something, Jaws, that would help people when you're looking at choices of foods. You know, like that's what's a struggle with people. They're like, okay, what do I eat? Yep. And what's a good food? So when you think of diabetes, ironically, when they came and I recognized, when they recognized you 10 years ago, the, they gave you an award and it was at the diabetes. But anyway, it was about diabetes. Juvenile Diabetes Association. Yep. Yep. Okay. And they gave you an award. Yeah. So I went, I, I was there to support you and I was sitting at a table and I don't know the difference between one or two. I'm as naive as anybody. Right. So I'm sitting there and I go, I go, what does anybody know what the difference is between one and two? They're all twos sitting at the table. Okay. They tell me, they're like the kid next to me, he goes, well, it's pretty simple. One is a genetic thing. Two is your fault. And I was like, what? <laughs> So then I started learning about the glycemic index. So what happens if you go back to sugar, if you spike your glycemic index all day, every day, that can really drive you to diabetes. It's tough on your internal system, your body itself. So how can you reduce that? So that's ultimately the best way to figure out what do I eat? So if you have used this formula, it's three against two. These three must be bigger than these two. These three are fat, protein, and fiber. So if you're looking at a food add those three up, whatever that number is, these two cannot be higher than it. Carbs and sugar, like carbs and sugar cannot exceed fat, protein, and fiber. Mm -hmm, Right. And that will help people make choices as they eat. And they'd actually, people will be shocked. Now, if you're going to have three foods, you got to add them all together. One might have higher, but the other two might um, balance it out. But it's a real easy thing for people to use to make choices about how they eat, Mm -hmm. the snacks they have around and create a lifestyle.
1: Well, speaking of a lifestyle, obviously talked about diet, nutrition, watching what you eat, you know, obviously monitoring what you eat. How about exercise? Where, where does that fit in? How, how much exercise
2: are you doing now? And what would you recommend for someone, say, 56 years old? Well, Josh, I think the first thing you have to assess is where are they in their health? You know, have they been doing a lot? If you haven't been doing a lot, the last thing you want to do is, come out gangbusters and wear somebody out. You want to build up to something. So you've got to start somewhere. You know, and people talk about walking. Walking is very good if you've not done anything to get movement. I will tell you this, one of the best ways I've ever trained, I used to do it when I played. I I worked on a thoroughbred track when I was a kid. We used to train horses in the water about half of the time because you just couldn't pound them on the ground too much because their arms, their legs basically are somewhat fragile. And if you fracture one, it's over, a horse doesn't heal. And I adopted a, a pool program when I train. Now, I try to train in the water as much as I can when I can, because it's therapeutically, it's amazing. Stress wise, it's incredible. But to give people some advice, you know, and it's always is hard because you don't know if they've been working out or they have. Let's say they've they've not really been doing much. The first thing I think you got to give people hope for is you can turn back the clock. You're out of shape and you're like, oh, I couldn't ever get that shape back. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Now you're gonna have to start somewhere. And when you start, I think being able to walk, stretching is a good thing. Yep. And weights that listen, stimulus of the muscle is required because that is where you get your metabolic rate. That is the thing that allows you to have X amount of calories. You know, it's the muscle. It's not the bone, it's not the the fat that we have, the weight that we have on it, it's the muscle mass that we're carrying and we got to stimulate that. So you can do that with bands, you can do that with light weights. You don't have to go in and try to squat or do deadlifts, but if you can get each joint and each body part moving. You invest 20 minutes a day initially. I do believe though that you need to invest at least 30 to 45 minutes a day to really get value in your health, get good health, you know. And this is some is better than none, but that is really what you got to build up to. You don't start out there, but you build up to that. And the walking, the stretching, stimulating your muscles with bands or little weights, I think is a, a great way to start. Because here's what starts to happen too, Josh. Mm-hmm. You start to get energized and you start feeling better about yourself. And it becomes addicting. Then you 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 like that stimulus through your day, uh, through your week. And having that a part of your lifestyle becomes a part of what you do. And then it becomes a habit for you. And the next thing you know, you're enjoying life a lot better. You know, you got, mm-hmm. at that age, you start having grandkids and there's maybe more free time to do things. And you have your health to maximize that with. Merle, is there a a better time of day when people should get that blood flowing? Well, Josh, that's actually a great question. And I will tell you this from from a fat burning perspective, if you think about it, your body has two energy sources, whatever food you have in your stomach and then your body fat. Okay, so the best thing, and actually I do this, I've, I've done this for years. I learned it a long time ago and I adopted it, adapted it, and it's really a lifestyle of mine now, is I get up and I do my cardio and my core program before I eat breakfast. Because what happens is in the morning, you have an empty stomach and the body now, when it starts to go look for energy, it goes and starts burning fat. So it's a much better way to burn fat off of your body is if you do cardio in the morning. You could do the whole thing in the morning. Sometimes I do that. But if I break it up into like two days, I'll do cardio and core in the morning. And then later in the day, I'll lift. Um, but if you really want to burn fat, do it on an empty stomach. You could do it first thing in the morning because you know what happens when you do eat and then you go work out. Well, the body's going to go to the stomach first before it goes to the external fat we have on the body. So the morning for me has been the best time to shave fat and clean fat off. Um, and if you're interested in doing that, I don't spend longer than 30 minutes in cardio jaws ever. Wow. Um, I'm not running a marathon. I'm not playing in the NFL anymore. <laughs> I'm just trying to say an optimal health and I do do two different types of cardio too. You know, I just mentioned the aorticide. Your heart is exactly like any muscle we have. You have two components you have an endurance component and a strength component, and both need to be trained. Training my heart at 70% three times a week and then two times at 90% has balanced my heart out. It's given me great heart strength, uh, especially on the aorticide, which a lot of people miss the spiking part. But if you can initially start, you'll gain momentum. You start in that area. I go to a gym every now and then, Jaws. I have one at my home. And I actually, the only reason I go there, I like to look around and watch other people working out because there's so many things that you can do that you forget about doing, different exercises to do things, you know, and changing it up and having variety is really important too, to keep you entertained. So the more you can learn about it and adapt to your program, the more excited you'll be about training. Merrill, great to
1: have you doing the Mythbusters section part of the show. Now, I'm in good shape, so it's not possible for
2: me to have cardiovascular disease. Well, Josh, that's actually incorrect. Your genetics do have a lot of factor in what you're doing. Your lifestyle has a big factor in what you're doing. And it is always critical and vital to, that's why you do annual checkups. You know, it's not just for the body. When we say about the body, we forget about the heart and the brain and things like that that matter, but it's actually uh, uh, incorrect.
1: Busted, busted. Myth number one, you busted me on that one, Merrill. All right, myth number two, I'm too young to worry about heart disease.
2: Busted jaws. We go back to genetics. Um, if that's in your family, you could have a problem. You could have a problem. So um, it's never too young to invest in your health and be monitoring your health.
1: Merrill, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, here on True to Your Heart. Uh, you've enlightened many, many people, including me, and I've known you for over 20 years. And every time I'm with you, I learn something uh, that betters my health. So my friend, thank you so much for joining us. I, I appreciate it and look forward to seeing you on the golf course soon. I can't wait to see you, Josh. You're the best, brother. Love you, man. All right. Thanks, Merrill. That's going to do it for us today. I would like to thank our special guests, Merrill Hodge and Dr. Peter Toth for joining me and educating us on cardiovascular health in men. For more information on how you can be true to your heart, visit www.trutoyourheart.com. I'm Ron Jaworski, and this has been True to Your Heart, presented by Amarin.